Last week, we finished preaching through the entire book of Ephesians. We went through chapters 1 through 6, verse by verse, and we had the recommendation, which we thought was a great idea, to do an overview of the book, to do a review of the book. So that is my purpose this morning and next week, is to do um, an overview of chapters 1 through 3 this morning and next week, chapters 4 through 6. To help in this, um, it's going to help me to know that all of you understand we've already covered all of this material. Otherwise, I'm going to feel like I'm rushing through it. Um, so we've spent many weeks, many months covering what I'm going to be covering this morning. And there is a lot, if you remember, in Ephesians chapter 1 alone. And we're going through chapters 1, 2, and 3 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be predominantly just in the first three chapters here this morning. Would you pray with me as we begin? God, we do give you praise for your goodness. God, we thank you for all the things you've done for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for coming and saving us, for loving us, for dying and being raised again so we can be set free from the law. So now we can freely love you and obey you out of a heart of joy and gratitude. God, I pray for this morning that you may speak through me, may you give me the words to say, may I be an instrument and a vessel for your purposes. God, I know I'm a sinful person and your word is holy. God, we thank you for your goodness that we have your word and that you do share with us so many truths and so many blessings so many promises that we can base our life on. Give us ears to hear this morning and eyes to see. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this letter was written between um, 60 and 62. The author was Paul, and he uh, was addressing this letter to the city of Ephesus. And that's why it's called uh, Ephesians. And this letter was first circulated there, but it was circulated to multiple churches in that area, and so this is why we contain so much of this letter today. It's actually a miniature doctrine of the church, what theologians call ecclesiology. The purpose of the church is wrapped up in the book of Ephesians. Pastor and teacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about Ephesians, the message of the Bible from beginning to end is designed to bring us back to God, to humble us before God, and to enable us to see our true relationship to Him. And that is the great theme of Ephesians. It holds us face to face with God, who God is and what God has done. It emphasizes throughout the glory and the greatness of God. God the eternal one, God the everlasting, God overall, and the indescribable glory of God. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, we're going to read all the way through verse 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his purposes, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So I have the job of summarizing chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 this morning. And as we go to the first point this morning, which wraps up what we just read in one point, this is going to be the most theologically intense point we have ever given you. And so point number one, God has predestined his elect to adoption, redemption, and holiness in Christ according to his sovereign will. Predestination, adoption, redemption, election, and sovereignty of God. Before I begin to touch on any of those, chapter 1 continues on. Look with me in verse 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, and the fullness of him who fills all in all. Point two this morning, Jesus is supreme and has all authority, power, and dominion over all things. Point number two, Jesus is supreme. He has all authority, all power, and dominion over all things. This means that everything happening in the world right now, everything happening in your life right now, God is over. And I want us to see from this passage, it doesn't just say that Jesus was placed over everything else and everything else stayed where it was at. Neither does it say everything was just placed under Jesus and Jesus stayed where he was at. It actually says in verse 20, that Jesus had been placed over everything. It says, seated him, Jesus, at the right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above. Far above what? All rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion. And above every name that is named is where Jesus was placed above. But then in verse 22, it says this. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church. So it's trying to emphasize here, he has been clearly placed above all, and there is a huge separation between the things that he is over and the things that are under him. It emphasizes both of those points. Well, practical application here is God is sovereign. God is in charge. God knows what you are dealing with before you do. He knows your needs before you have needs, and he supplies them. We've saying this morning, God is faithful. His faithfulness that we can trust in him, the situations that we're going through, the situations we see in the New Testament that believers were going through, facing death and martyrdom, they trusted in the Lord because he was sufficient. We're going to talk about a little later about Saul and some of the things that he faced and his trust in the Lord. We never see him complaining. Why couldn't, why couldn't he complain? Because he had a faith in the Lord and he knew if he was in a situation, God would provide. For you this morning, are you in a situation? God can and will provide in the midst of that. So in chapter 1, predestination, election, adoption, and the sovereignty of God. So I want to ask Terry 
Do, we have, do you have anything you'd like to share before I go into some of these verses on election, predestination, adoption, and sovereignty of God? No. All right. I don't either. So we're going to move on to chapter 2. <laughs> it's going to go right along. We're going we're gonna to get out early this morning. Um, unfortunately, sadly, that is a lot of times what happens is churches do not touch on some of these controversial issues because for the sake of just keeping peace, we, we don't go there. Um, and if we go there, we go there very gently and we, we don't even dig down at all. And the problem with that is where do we find election, predestination, adoption, and the sovereignty of God? I mean, so when we skip out on these things, we're, we're skipping out on some things God has put in there for a reason. And so this is why we go verse by verse through the scriptures, so we can't get out of things, right? And so when we come to things, we have to deal with it. We have to work through this because the things God has given us in his word are for our good. They're for our benefit. They're because he loves us and wants to comfort us. And a lot of times these cause controversies, or they can. I shouldn't say these issues cause controversy. We allow them to cause controversy and dissension in the church. For example, Pastor Terry preached recently on the importance of prayer, why we should pray, why prayer is essential. Well, somebody can read Ephesians chapter 1 and say, well, I mean, why pray if God is sovereign? Why pray? Why do I need to pray if God has adopted some and not others? Why pray if, if there's already a certain number? Why evangelize? If, if God already knows, and already, why evangelize? Why do I do these things if God is that? And those seem like legitimate questions until you reverse them. And, and I want us to ask the right question. So here's what I think the right question is. If God is not sovereign, why pray? That's the right question. I mean, why pray if God is not in control of all things? Why pray if God can't change the hardest of hearts? Why pray, why evangelize if God's hands are tied and he can't do something in the midst of that circumstance? See, when we go to God in prayer, we're not thinking that. We're thinking God can do all things, so we pray. That's sovereignty of God. We're trusting in the Lord that he is all-powerful, and what I'm praying, he can do. We don't pray timid prayers to a God whose hands are tied and, and many believers believe this, that God's hands are tied until we unleash them to do, well, now who's the puppet and who's the master? We're not in control of God. God allows us to be part of the process, but we're not the one controlling him. It's an opportunity and a benefit and a privilege to pray. We pray, as Terry mentioned, because God is the one, unless he does it, it doesn't matter. So we submit to him because he's all-powerful. That's why we pray. We're in submissive relationship to him. We pray because we have to, because we need to, because apart from God, I am nothing. So it shows the humility of my heart when I pray. When there's things I don't pray about, it's because I think I can handle them. If, if things are going great at your job, I don't need to pray for that because I'm doing pretty well. When things aren't going great, I need the Lord. God, please show up. Please work in the midst of this circumstance, I would say the truth of the matter is because we believe in the sovereignty of God, we should pray bolder prayers. We should pray prayers that are more confident because we believe God can do all things. So we pray to that end that his hands are not tied and he can change the hardest of hearts. We see 
in Scripture where he gets a hold of Saul's heart, a persecutor of Christians destroying the church, and he shows up in his life because God designed it, the whole situation where I'm going to use Saul. Was it a coincidence that Saul met all the perfect criteria that God wanted to use him for his purposes throughout the entire New Testament? That he was a Jew, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was the best of the best. And God used him to speak to those saying, listen, I've already been down that road. Was that coincidental? I mean, this appeals to, and we see at the end of Paul's life where he's in prison, about to be killed. We never see Paul complaining. Why? Because he knew that God could get him out at any moment. But he trusted in the Lord that this is your plan. Even if I go, even if I'm killed, even if circumstances are bad, I'm trusting in your sovereignty. I'm trusting, I'm having confidence in you because I'm just thankful to be saved. That was his attitude. I'm just, I'm just thankful that you've trusted or that I've trusted in you. I mean, and that was his attitude. So we pray to a God who is sovereign, who can do all things. How comforting it is, and this is how it should be when we share our faith. When we're sitting across from somebody at the dinner table, or we invite somebody out, and we're sitting on a, on a bench talking to somebody, and we want to share the gospel with them. How comforting it is that it's not up to us, that we just do our best, but God can save the hardest of hearts, and his word is powerful and effective at changing the hardest of hearts. That's a comfort to me. When I'm sitting with somebody that I can think, man, I don't deserve to be able to share the gospel. I'm going to mess this up. There's probably a thousand ways I could have done it better, but God, I'm doing the best I can, and you can do a work. You can do this work. How many of you as an example, because I know this is a, a tough thing for us to struggle with. And I know we don't have it all figured out, and that's okay. I don't have it figured out. Terry doesn't have it figured out. We don't have it figured out. But how many of us have ever prayed for the salvation of somebody else or for somebody's heart to be changed in a situation? Let's be bold and raise our hands this morning. You ever prayed for somebody's salvation? Okay, almost everybody has their hands up. What are we praying to in the midst of that moment? We're praying for God to do something sovereignly. If, and we don't think through it at the time. I know when I used to all believe just free will, I didn't believe really sovereignty of God like I'm preaching now. I would pray for people's salvation, pray that God would change a circumstance in somebody's life. That I would pray that God would put somebody else in, the, in his path or change his heart or do this. And that's sovereignty of God. That's a comfort now that Man, God is big enough to do these things. So I, I want to encourage us and understand what the sovereignty of God is. As an example, my wife and I have a nine-month-old son named Elias. I pray, and we pray every, every night for God to save our child at a young age. We pray for God to do that. I don't pray timid prayers asking God, just, just get him a little closer to you so he can choose you. I don't pray that. I pray, God, do whatever it takes to save my son. This is eternity we're talking about. I even pray, God, don't make it rely on him. Why do I do that? Well, because I know my son has a heart just like my heart was. A heart that loves the world and the things in the world. And that desires everything else but the Lord. That's, that's who my son's heart. If he's following after his father's heart, that's how my heart was. So I pray, God, I pray that that decision, that you intervene and do something there because I know he's going to love the world just like his dad loved the world. So God, do a work there, and I know you can. 
If I'm trusting in the Lord, do whatever it takes to save my son. I'm comforted by his sovereignty that I have a father in heaven who has all power, who's in control of all things. Amanda and I understand we can't just forsake our responsibilities. That would be unscriptural as well. We have responsibilities and choices that we make as well in the midst of this. Psalms 127 so clearly speaks this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. So we can be building. All of us can be building. But unless the Lord builds the house, it doesn't matter. It goes on. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So somebody's watching over the city. God says, listen, that's not going to matter. Unless I'm doing it, you're not safe. It doesn't matter if somebody's watching over the city. It is in vain that you rise up early, go, to, uh, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Verse 3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb of reward. I want to encourage you with one last thing. We find Ephesians 1, some of the greatest truths in Scripture about the sovereignty of God. Is there anyone else we would rather have at the helm than God? A beloving God, a gracious God, a God that gives grace in the midst of circumstances. So please don't let these glorious truths ever cause contention or division or dispute among believers because they were put here for our joy as a benefit to us, not a burden, not something that causes uprisings or divisions. And many times in the church it has done that very thing. Going into Ephesians 2, the picture turns and immediately addresses us. What it means about us. And we see in verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. And you were dead. So it goes from God's greatness, His majesty. And then it turns to us and says, but you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, my heart, like I spoke of earlier, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Point number three this morning, all people are by nature spiritually dead, transgressors of God's law and under the rule of Satan. Verse number one, Basically says we're dead, spiritually speaking. Verse number two, we lived our lives following the desires of our heart. The desires of our heart was always sin. We always chose wrong. We always chose sin. And look at the end of verse number three. What does it compare us to? It says we were, every single one of us in here, we were by nature what? Children of wrath. We all once were children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Scripture says everybody else in the world apart from Christ, they're children of wrath. That's what you used to be, Scripture says, children of wrath. But he doesn't end there. He goes on, verse 4, changes the tune here. But God, God stepping in, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him. You see all these actions that God does on our behalf? It's his doing. Seated 
us with him in the heavenly places. Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Point number four, salvation is a gift from God received by grace through faith, not any of our works. Salvation is a gift from God received by grace through faith, not any of our works. We're going to see that expanded in verses 8 through 10. Look with me in verses 8 through 10. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we were just like everyone else, broken, sinful, following the desires of our heart, like the rest of mankind, but God stepped in. And something I want us to see here is that our salvation and holiness is God's working in us. Your salvation and holiness is God's working in you. It's not the other way around. It's not you're working towards God. And that's very important to understand. My salvation and my holiness is not my work towards God. And neither is yours. It's God's work in you. And when it begins with God's work in you, it leads to a life of grace and love and freedom. When it begins with us working towards God, it leads to a life just like Katie talked about. She said she was trapped. I had a feeling of hopelessness. Because we could never fulfill and follow the law that God gave us. The commandments in the scriptures, all the things we were told, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. We couldn't do any of them. And God knew it. And he sent Christ to fulfill all of them so that when he looks at us, he sees perfection. He sees what God has done on our behalf. I don't follow Jesus Christ and obey God's word because I have to, and neither should you. I don't have to follow God's word anymore. I get to follow God's word. It's a privilege. Before I was a follower, I tried to do that. I tried to have to. I tried to work my way to God, and it didn't work, and it didn't work the thousands of years before Christ. That's why Christ came. When we understand this glorious truth, it frees us to understand Christ fulfilled this. Now I want to live for him. Now I want to pursue what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now I want to pursue to be the husband that God wants me to be. I want to pursue to be the type of man that God wants me to be. That's what understanding the gospel means in our life. I had no pursuit of God until he stepped in my sinful life and pursued me. Some of you this morning, maybe you're not even sure if you're a believer. I mean, if you really sit down and think, am I a believer? You can evaluate the fruit in your life and, and, and really look. Maybe, maybe you just know, listen, I, I know about God, but I, I don't know him. I encourage you after the service, immediately come find me or Terry or another man or woman of God and sit down and work through that. We would love to meet with you. Nothing is more important than you and your relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's that's why we do what we do. That's why Christ came. That is the reason, as we say, for the season. So I encourage you to find one of us. But understand that our salvation is not a result of our goodness towards God. As we've already seen, he was the one who predestined Ephesians 1.5, Ephesians 1.11. 
He elected and chose us before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 1.4, he adopted us. We didn't adopt him. Ephesians 1.5, he was rich in mercy towards you, towards me, not us towards him. Ephesians 2.4, he had a great love towards us when all we had towards him was a hatred. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and 2, 5. We were dead in our sins. That's where we were at. But Christ has made us alive. Ephesians 2, 5. His salvation is a gift towards us that we receive by his grace through faith. We do nothing to earn it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Because of these things, may our hearts be filled with the thankfulness that we get to now follow the Lord because of a love for him. That's what it means to think that God loves me. I mean, to think God loves you. You know you better than I do. To think, I mean, do I deserve the love the Lord has shown in my life? Do I deserve the riches and the blessings? No, but God did those things anyways, and we praise him for that. God, we thank you for that. Well, the next point that we'll see as we move in, continuing in Ephesians chapter 2, point number 5 is this. Salvation is for anyone who calls upon the, or who calls upon Christ as Lord and Savior. Salvation is for anyone who calls upon Christ as Lord and Savior. Ephesians 2, we're going to see this in verses 11 through 14. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So whether we were a Jew or a Gentile, whether we were a man or a woman, whether we thought we were a really good person, or we knew that we were a worst sinner, salvation is available for anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, repents of their sins, and turns and trusts him. And as I said, I pray that if you have not done that, that you get that taken care of this morning. That we get serious about our relationship with Jesus Christ. The next portion of scripture takes us to our next point, and it's this. God's purpose for your salvation is found within the church. God's purpose for your salvation is found within the church. Now, I, growing up, never heard this. Even when I was in church, I didn't hear it. I thought salvation was always about me. It was for me, but scripture actually says it was for a different purpose, and I get a benefit from that, but for me is not the main purpose. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 through 22, and we'll have some quiz questions throughout this since we've reviewed it already. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might, Jesus, create in himself one new man. Do you remember who the new man in Scripture is that we talk about in this passage? There was once two men, the old men, and now there's one new man. Remember who it was? It's not Jesus in this one. 
The church. The church. Let's continue. Create in himself one new man, the church, in place of the two. Now, who were the two? There were two men, one who was near, one who was far. The Jewish people and the Gentile people. So making peace. Verse 16. That they might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Who were the people who were far off? The Gentiles. And peace to those who were near. Who were those who were considered near? The Jewish people. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the church. One of the main purposes that this passage is saying is that Christ came. And we sang about it this morning about the mystery. Well, what was the mystery? Well, how God was going to do this work he spoke of in the Old Testament. Christ came and the mystery was the church. The church was now going to not just be for Jewish people. It was going to be for everyone. Anyone who professes Christ as Lord can be brought in and saved and be part of this thing we call the church. So point number six, God's purpose for our salvation is found within the church. He might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Well, Ephesians chapter 3, we've briefly seen Ephesians 2, the purpose of your salvation is found within the church. In chapter 3, we see a little bit about the purpose of the church itself. So look with me in verse 9 of Ephesians chapter 3 verse 9 says this to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things this mystery we sang about hidden for ages purpose of the church verse 10 so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God notice what it says here God wants to use what To portray his manifold wisdom. The church. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And then he goes on. This was according to the eternal purpose. And then it goes on to say from whom? The eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, I always heard Christ Jesus came just to die for me. That if I was the only person, that Christ would have died for me. How many of you have heard some things like that? I remember hearing that, and man, he died just for me. I can't say if he would or wouldn't. I know scripture says that wasn't the only reason he came. It says he came to do this thing called the church, which involves all of us. That he came for God's purposes, for the church. The eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus was to bring about reconciliation between those who are far off the the Gentiles, and those who were near, the Jews. Marry those together. And in the church, it says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to everyone. And it's through the church, by our love for one another, that those in the world can see that we are from God. That's one of the promises, that through our love for one another, those people out in the world, the rest of mankind, see us as differently. That's the purpose of the church. We need to see that the church is the central piece of the work God is doing in the world. 
we are a part of that. What a privilege. This is why we talk about the importance of church. This is why we have a membership process. This is why somebody comes up to us and says, I want to be a member. Well, there's a process. We evaluate and we meet with them. We want to make sure they are believers and that they are pursuing the Lord. We want to obey and honor all commandments in Scripture because this is the bride of Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ. How important it is that we make sure that we are set apart and living holy lives. How incredible it is that we've been saved by his grace. I want to end with Paul's prayer for the believers that we see in verses 14 through 19. And then I'll pray and then we'll have our time of celebration at the baptism. Verse 14. Would you pray this with me? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I know we've went through Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, and we've moved through it briskly, but God, I thank you for the truths that you've given us. God, I thank you that you are in control of all things, that everything and anything that is in our life or will come in our life, you are far above it. God, may that bring us comfort we don't understand how all of it works out, and, but we trust in you that you are good, that you are loving, that you are pure, that you are mighty. God, to think that you have came and to save us from ourselves, from the desires of our heart. Now it's no longer a have to. I don't have to follow the Lord. I get to. You've set me free to be able to do that by your gospel, by your good news. God, we thank you for the baptism that we're about to have. We thank you we can continue in spending time with you and with others. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you most importantly for your son, Jesus Christ, and the work he has done in us, in this church, and he is doing in the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.